Thomas very much for inviting me here to come over for your wonderful seminar series. As was just mentioned, my chief field of interest is family migration policy. However, the last couple of years I've been involved in a research project on migrant domestic workers in various EU countries, and I've been focusing on the Netherlands. And in doing so, I've become more and more intrigued by the, the fault line, you could say, between work performed in the home as, as family commitment, as part of family obligation, and work performed in the home as paid labor and um, as um, something in between those two categories, you could say, is uh, unpaid labor in the home as a form of exploitation, either um, in the context of patriarchal family relations or in the context of exploitative uh, labor. And that's uh, largely what I'm going to be talking about today. The paper that my talk is based on, I wrote for a special volume on employment and residence rights. And this volume looks at the contradictory links that are being made. On the one hand, migrants can be validated on the basis of employment. They, become, they can be qualified as a worthy citizen on the basis of the fact that they are employed and earning their own keep. On the other hand, migrant workers are also often perceived of as a threat to the national labor market. And then in that case, employment is actually disqualifies them for residence uh, because of that. I think myself, I've, I've discovered the work of Adam McEwen, whose book, um, The Melancholy Order on the Exclusionary Clauses in, in, American, in the History of American Migration Law, actually is, is quite, uh, provides quite interesting theoretical insights in these kind of contradictory perceptions of how migration and employment relate to each other. And I think his insights are also actually quite useful for thinking through uh, what is presently happening in the uh, Dutch family migration policies, where we see a similar kind of unease and tension concerning unpaid labor in the home uh, in the context of migration policy. And I'll try and explain that in the course of this paper. Um, so the way I want to build up my talk, I'll start with saying some more about uh, McEwen uh, and uh, the points in his book, Melancholy Order, that I find useful for my own analysis. And then I will start on a historical account looking at the way care work has been validated in the Netherlands in terms of citizenship and, and focusing on the instabilities and um, uh, the shifts uh, that have occurred and how this has also worked through in migration policy, uh, bringing us down to current Dutch migration policies the discourse uh, in family migration and how the tensions and ambiguities about where to place care work, in, uh, if, uh, whether as, as a form of family obligations, part of family life, or if it should be actually framed as in more in terms of exploitation. Having done that, I will then move to a different level, namely EU case law on the freedom of movement. And um, the kind of discourse that is emerging in the case law of the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg and how sort of a parallel uh, story is emerging in which care work seems to play a very different role uh, than it does in current Dutch migration policy discourse. 
And there's clearly, there seems to be a tension between the national discourse and the EU discourse, and I'll try and relate that back to McEwen's uh, analysis. And finally, uh, I will look at some recent case law of the European Court of Human Rights and address the question to what extent this human rights case law might actually be uh, an area where these tensions are being mediated because uh, human rights law is relevant both to the national and to the European case law. So there's an overlap there in, European, uh, in human rights law and there we see that both the right to respect for family life is a protected right, but also protection against exploitation is a family right. And we see that in some case law, uh, judges are forced to negotiate the tension between those two concepts. To start with, Adam McEwen's work, The Melancholy Order, um, he describes the history of the American exclusion causes, clauses which were designed to exclude Asian migrant workers. And he sees these, this history of these exclusion clauses as actually having laid the groundwork for patterns in restrictive migration policies that he sees being repeated afterwards in um, migration regimes around the world, really. Um, and he explains these exclusion causes in the context of the United States in the 19th century, late 19th century, where there had been a successful, um, after the Civil War, the sense that slavery had been banned from the United States, that this was a great victory, and that the United States was a country of free labor. And Asian workers were being perceived uh, in these exclusion clauses as potentially bonded labor, unfree labor, uh, workers who did not work in the same kind of labor relations as were being seen as typical of American labor relations at the time. Um, and so this was, this was on these grounds, they were being excluded, and partly because they were uh, unfree, so they didn't fit in with the American um, working relations, and also being perceived of as a threat to this um, this emancipation of the labor uh, of workers in the United States. We can recognize a lot of the current anti-trafficking discourse in what he describes, that um, there is a sense of needing restrictive and, and um, exclusionary labor migration policies to combat uh, bonded labor, um, servitude, and um, exploitation. Um, in which the workers themselves have an ambiguous role as being on the one hand victims of these exploitative relations, but in being so they are also a threat to the emancipation that has been acquired in the United States. And I think modern trafficking discourse echoes that to a large extent. He also describes how the channels of migration that had been created and established and maintained um, before this period of, of migration law, which had functioned largely through um, relations, patronage, family, um, these kinds of connections increasingly were being labeled as exploitative and corrupt. So they were being disqualified and the regulated, state-directed uh, regulation of migration was being um, constructed as 
the proper way to regulate migration. That's the second point of interest that I will be coming back to later. And the third point that is interesting in his analysis, I think certainly if we're reflecting on parallels with the current situation, is how he shows that there was a clear tension between a local nativist position on migration as a threat to um, US workers and the positions taken by federal courts and also by the colonial British courts that tended to favor freedom of movement and intercourse, international intercourse between um, various parts of the world. This was sort of the discourse of, of movement within the colony also, but also intercourse between the United States and China and the other nations that should be uh, becoming more open and freer and the idea of um, restrictions to movement as being something that had to be um, left behind and diminished rather than increased. So there was a tension, clear tension between what was happening on a local level and a, um, a movement on a local level to protect um, US workers against the threat of the bonded labor coming from Asia and this federal court discourse, uh, both in the US and in the UK, which was much more for free movement. That just as a theoretical background that I will be coming back to later. But first, I want to look at um, how citizenship and uh, family norms have interacted in the Netherlands in the post-war period to show how what's in the 1950s and 60s was seen as something totally separate from the whole issue of paid labor, mainly the family as a unit, um, gradually eroded or changed, but didn't erode, it was changed quite, uh, quite dramatically, uh, setting the stage for a whole new attitude towards the family in the context of migration law. Um, in the post-war period, is a period in which uh, modern social democracies were, were built up with you know, state-regulated um, compensation for loss of income through unemployment, disability, old age, social housing policies, nationally regulated health services, um, et cetera, et cetera. And the main uh, target of all these policies was the breadwinner citizen, the male breadwinner who had to support his family, who had to take the responsibility for his family as well. And he had to be facilitated through all these um, compensations for loss of income so that he could continue doing so, so the family would not fall apart through uh, loss of income. Um, so labor relations had to be well regulated, had to be protected against, um, against um, uh, redundancy. He had to have compensation for loss of income, social housing, etc. Part of the male breadwinner citizen was also the fact that he had a spouse and children that he was responsible for and that he was looking after. And in the literature on this period, we see that his wife and the mother of his children also played a role, a subservient role, but a significant role nonetheless in uh, as, as a sort of moral reconstruction after the war. She was the one who had to become the modern uh, housewife, the modern consumer, who had to educate her husband in uh, modern tastes and had to bring up her children to become the proper modern um, citizens of this new social democratic order. And so, to an extent at least, the wives 
as wives and mothers and also daughters looking after the older generation, were validated in terms of how they sort of completed the breadwinner citizen and added this moral dimension to his citizenship. So they were subordinate. They were not seen as full citizens. They were not the focal target of social democracy, but they had a significant role in reproducing citizenship. In the 1970s and 80s, as we all know, there was um, throughout Western Europe and also in the Netherlands um, a reaction, feminist reaction to this whole patriarchal order centered around the male breadwinner citizen with wife and mother stuck at home, not taking part in paid labor. And a number of points on the feminist agenda were that this patriarchal, hierarchical family relations should be overturned, equality between the genders, an elimination of the gender division of paid and unpaid labor, that care labor should be validated as well as, as a significant um, contribution to, to economic life, uh, combating gendered violence as an expression of this hierarchical relationship between men and women, and challenging in a, generally the public-private divide between paid labor, which was labeled as male, unpaid labor, labeled as female. And in the Netherlands, this uh, feminist revolt, uh, you know, the, the, the change in sexual values, uh, family values, was, was quite striking in the 70s and 80s, and led to a lot of uh, ferment about, you know, what is the family, how should society be organized. Um, a lot of changes in social policy were introduced uh, in the course of the years. Marriage became much less uh, of a norm. Unmarried relations became much more integrated into social policy. But it took a long time before family relations, uh, family law actually uh, changed because there was so much um, disagreement on what the family was. So there was no consensus concerning what the family should be uh, until the 1990s. And then we finally see in family law a new consensus, a new codification of family law. And we see that not just in family law, but in, in also in social policy, also in labor law, there's much more of a consensus of formal equality between the genders. So men and women are both uh, supposed to be able to take part in, in paid labor. But we see in many respects that the feminist agenda was not actually um, realized. For example, gendered violence became an issue, a lot of policy focusing on it, but it was no longer related to the power dynamics within the family between men and women, but it was rather related to a psychological dysfunctioning, seen as an individual problem, and increasingly also associated with specific cultural contexts in which uh, particularly non-Western culture was seen as being a high risk. As there became more emphasis on individual responsibility rather than uh, thinking of people in terms of the family union, but in terms of individuals who were free to choose how they would live together, how they would raise their children, whether they marry or not, this was all seen as individual freedom uh, that people should have, but at the same time it implied a lot of individual responsibility. And we see that there seems to be a growing um, legitimation for state intervention in what are seen as dysfunctional families. So um, you can see it in education law, for example, that up until the 1960s, 70s, compulsory education was framed very much as uh, something for the emancipation of children. Um, increasingly now it's being framed in terms of control, 
prevention of criminal behavior and it's being seen more as, as a, an avenue of intervention into pedagogy and how children are being brought up rather than something as, as emancipatory and, and certain the individual rights of the child. So there is an increasing discourse justifying state intervention in families that are seen as problematic. Paid labor is seen as something that men and women both should take part in and it is being seen as the prime virtue of the citizen and the ideas of the 50s and 60s um, that um, citizenship also has to do with the um, sort of the moral economy of the family, the kind of altruism that family uh, is supposed to express is much less evident and um, the whole um, one of the desiderata of much of the feminist movement, which was to validate care, to validate the work that women do in um, maintaining homes, in raising children, in producing intimacy, um, just has not stuck. So uh, while there's um, concern for paid labor, and women are assumed to take part in paid labor, the whole issue of um, the work that they've left behind in the homes is not being addressed, is not being validated, is actually seen as, um, as a non-issue of something of less value. Um, so on the one hand, um, the issues of care are not being validated the way uh, feminists once hoped they might be. At the same time, we also see that um, the status of labor as, um, um, as, as facilitating the breadwinner in being able to support a family the whole idea that labor should be um, a, a long-term contracts, that it should provide security, that it should pay a family wage, that it should be insured against loss of income, has also lost a lot of ground. Um, so I think, um, on the one hand, the issue of validating care has not um, come out the way feminists had hoped, but at the same time, uh, the whole idea of the breadwinner has lost a lot of ground. And in the Netherlands we see, and I think this is true in most Western European countries, there has been a considerable increase in quasi-self-employed people. So people working uh, self-employed without very much security for the case they, they lose their work or become disabled. There's an enormous increase in temporary employment. Uh, and women traditionally have always, um, if they were working, they were working part-time. This is still very much the case in the Netherlands. But there's also a lot of pressure on some sectors in which a lot of men are employed um, to also work part-time. And I've taken this, um, this flyer, and I will uh, translate it for you because I think it um, expresses this very clearly. Um, there's this, uh, it's from the TNT Postal Services, and um, it shows the, the, the wagon that they use to bring around the mail. And they say, well, this is a logical sequence to the baby buggy. And they're advertising people who are looking to, uh, they say, we're looking for um, male deliverers who will work at the most 15 hours a week. Uh, you can be nice and independent, read you're not being insured against various things, you know, no benefits. You're a quasi-independent person. And um, you will soon become a familiar face in the neighborhood take your children to school and go after that and work for us. And um, at the time that this played, the, um, um, one of the CEOs of TNT was being interviewed on the radio and he said, well, the full-time breadwinner is no longer 
our basic working assumption. We, we no longer see that as a standard labor, co uh, labor contract. We are working on the basis of flexible, precarious, uh, temporary, part-time workers. Now, the trade unions uh, didn't accept this. They, they resisted it quite strongly and had some degree of success. So these 15-hour uh, contracts uh, were not introduced as standard contracts, which was the original intention. Uh, so the unions did book some success. They won that battle, but we can question whether they've won the war. Another sector where you see similar things is home-based care. Up until 2007, 80% of the people working in home-based care were actually employed by health care centers, and 20% were working as quasi-self-employed. In 2007, um, there was a major reorganization in the sector, which resulted in the most basic forms of home-based care, which are basically just household services, were decentralized to the municipalities. And after that, who had to put out tenders for the cheapest um, offers of uh, uh, providers of home-based care. And following that, the relationship was reversed, and 80% were working as quasi-self-employed, and 20% were working as um, employees with full benefits. Again, there has been a lot of resistance to that. There have been some laws passed to sort of try and, and, and revert that, but these laws are very much under pressure because clearly the whole idea of the exercise was to reduce the costs of care, and if you can't replace full employees with full benefits with quasi-self-employed, then a lot of that effect is gone. So we can see that the whole idea of being a worker means being able to support a family, having security, this is very much under pressure. I will come back to that also again later. Now, in the same periods, the same when this shift was had, had occurred, sort of the 1950s breadwinner model, the enormous moral ferment of the 60s and 70s, what is the family, which way are we going, and the present um, new consensus, which is very individualist, very much labor market oriented, but again, a very specific form of labor market. There have been parallel changes in Dutch migration law. In the 1970s and 80s, when there was this whole confusion about um, what family norms should be in the Netherlands, you could say there was also a very large confusion about who the Dutch were, because you know, who you are and how you think about family are very related issues. Um, and in that period, there was a lot of openness in the Netherlands, comparatively at least, to the um, non-Dutch culture of migrants. Uh, there was a strong sense that um, settled migrants had a right to their own culture, that there should be ethnic minorities policies. And again, since family norms and culture are very uh, intimately related, there was also a strong openness to family reunification. So settled labor migrants had, um, had strong rights to bring over their spouses and children. In the 1990s, as a new consensus emerged about family norms in the Netherlands, there also was a new interest in national Dutch identity, in asserting who we were as Dutch. And the way this identity was constructed um, echoes very clearly the new consensus in family norms. We see again that individualism, individual freedom, gender equality, sexual freedom, these are very important elements in how Dutch identity is currently being constructed, and also the notion of paid labor being a source of civic virtue. 
And issues of faith and culture became demoted uh, in the public interest. They became, they were sort of relegated to the private sphere, seen as less, uh, not as an issue of public concern, the same way that care issues largely have uh, not been acknowledged as central to, uh, to national interest or to national identity. They've also been sort of relegated to, to the back door, to the private sphere, as something that is not um, demanding public attention. And in this period, since then, we have seen increasingly uh, restrictive family migration policies. So the whole idea of the unit of the family as being a prime principle of Dutch migration law was uh, dropped in the 1990s, and the idea of social cohesion, pro promoting the cohesion of Dutch society, became much more important. So we see, for example, it's become much easier to expel um, migrants with, uh, with criminal record, uh, even if they have strong family ties in the Netherlands. Up until 1995, that was very difficult. Since the 1990s, it's becoming increasingly uh, acceptable to do. Now, in the current discourse on family migration policy, we see that there is a growing um, distinction being made between cross-border families involving non-Western migrants and what is seen as uh, the normal, proper Dutch family relations. Dutch family, uh, the Dutch society is presented as being uh, not particularly gendered. Men and women are supposed to be equal. But the discourse on uh, cross-border families, uh, family migrants, is highly gendered. And these, these points that I'm quoting here are all from a, a government policy document from 2009, proposing changes in family migration policies. And some of these changes are right now being implemented. And in this document, um, you see that, the first of all, it assumes that uh, a marriage migrant is always female and that it's always men who are bringing over a spouse. There is no mention in the whole document of women bringing over male spouses, or let alone homosexual uh, couples. It's, it's all heterosexual, and it's all about men bringing over women. Um, the men who bring over a woman from a non-Western background are assumed themselves to be non-Western, to a large degree, not all of them, but most of them are assumed to be non-Western and not to be part of the individualist self-sufficient ethos of what we now see of as the Dutch identity. The women that they are bringing over are soon to be passive, poorly educated, and submissive, and vulnerable to abuse. And so the men bringing these women over are seen as a threat to these women's emancipation, to them becoming part of this emancipated Dutch society. And these women themselves are being seen as a threat to Dutch society because they will be bringing up children um, they will be incapable to bring up their children to be proper emancipated Dutch citizens. So we see sort of a similar kind of double bind that we see in, in uh, McEwen's description of um, the exclusionary cause, uh, clauses against what was perceived of as bond of labor. On the one hand, uh, victims that um, are being exploited. On the other hand, a uh, potential threat to the emancipated uh, labor relations uh, in the United States. And it's very interesting to see how, in just a few decades, there has been this very strong switch in thinking of family and migration, because up until 1985, the least problematic migrant was the foreign wife of a Dutch citizen. 
Up until 1985, any Dutch citizen who brought over a foreign wife, she was supposed to acquire Dutch nationality with great ease. Uh, up, till, up until 1965, she acquired it automatically, and up until 1985, she, she could acquire it just by uh, signing the declaration. The same was absolutely not true for the foreign husband of a Dutch woman, and um, up until recently, it was foreign male spouses that were seen as problematic because they were seen as um, bogus marriage migrants just sort of trying to circumvent restrictions on labor migration and actually coming to, to work in the Netherlands. But again, they've sort of disappeared from the scene. And the focus now is on the foreign wife. And now in 2012, this foreign wife is seen as the uh, most problematic migrant in contrast to 1985. Just some more indications of this in these recent proposals. Men who choose for a non-Western foreign bride are assumed to want a woman who's less emancipated, more compliant, subservient, willing to provide sexual services. Um, and this also applies to Dutch men who are bringing over wives from Eastern Europe, for example, or, or the Philippines. So they are actually being disqualified uh, as citizens. They are not um, displaying the kind of attitude that, as a good Dutch citizen, one is supposed to display. Ironically, if we look at Dutch family migration policies, they actually reproduce the old notions of the breadwinner citizen. <coughs> because to qualify to bring over a spouse uh, from abroad, the Dutch spouse must meet quite strict income requirements, must have a steady job, must earn at least minimum wage. And uh, these proposals actually suggested that he should earn more than the minimum wage and should also have relatively high education so that he can, um, you know, look after his wife and, and help her integrate into Dutch society probably, pro properly in the way that the patriarchal uh, figure in the male uh, breadwinner citizen would have been expected to do perhaps in the 1950s and 60s. So anyone wanting to bring over a foreign spouse actually has to be a super male breadwinner citizen who, as I've just explained, is actually becoming a very rare commodity in the Netherlands these days. At the same time, the foreign spouse is kept in a dependent position. Up until now, that was for three years. The first three years of residence, you have to stay in the marriage or relationship. If you leave it, even if you have a fantastic job, doesn't matter, you lose your residence status. Now, this dependent status is now being extended to five years, um, which is very remarkable considering the expressed concern for the vulnerability of these foreign wives to abuse from their husbands. However, they're kept in this vulnerable position now for five years instead of three. This has just been passed through the uh, Dutch uh, parliament, so probably will become law in due time. So it's very intriguing to me that the breadwinner citizen seems to play a very ambiguous role in these uh, current Dutch family migration policies. On the one hand, um, the patriarchal husband, according to the 1950s models of the head of the family, um, and the top of the family hierarchy, is being presented as something totally uh, wrong, not in accordance with the modern emancipated values, uh, something uh, to be opposed, uh, not to be uh, facilitated through migration policies, but at the same time, um, the requirements that are imposed on family migrants and on the sponsors in the Netherlands actually reflect that hierarchy and 
the breadwinner citizen idea of, you know, you have to support your family, you have to have a steady income, you have to have a security um, to be able to take on family responsibility. It's almost as if in migration law, this old ideal, this center of the social democratic project, the, the breadwinner citizen as, as the worthy citizen is still being reflected as an ideal at the same time that this ideal has become more and more difficult to attain for people in the Netherlands. And so there's, I think it's almost as if it's a way of denying the fact that the breadwinner citizen is actually on the way out in the Netherlands. It's, it's an ideal you can hardly achieve anymore, and yet it's still being projected, this is what we are, uh, this is what a responsible, a responsible citizen is, this is who deserves to live in our social democratic society. So very, uh, very problematic, very ambiguous, um, almost as if it's haunting still uh, migration policy while at the same time being rejected. So very ambiguous and peculiar um, dynamic. Okay, that's, that's the national story where you see a certain tension, I think, about anxieties about the loss of social democracy, the type of security that you to give to the breadwinner, uh, father, family supportive figure, and being sort of combined with anxieties about migrants uh, undermining the um, perceived gains of, of uh, emancipated family relations and very reminiscent, I think, of what McEwen describes uh, in his book on, on the exclusionary clauses and how they fit in um, with anxieties about uh, free labor in the United States. On the U EU level, we see some very different things happening. First of all, uh, I should explain, probably you might know, but I'll explain anyway, the, the, the interesting thing about EU migration law is that it's not meant to restrict mobility, it's meant to promote it. It's meant to promote mobility within the European Union. And anything that inhibits the movement, the free movement of EU citizens from one member state to the other is, is against the grain of EU migration law. In the past, when we used to assume that families were sort of units, that um, there was a breadwinner citizen and then there was a spouse and kids that sort of followed him, and that was just a unit that traveled around, and nobody really sort of thought about the fact that those, that spouse and those children were also individuals that, um, you know, you could see separately from the breadwinner citizen. This, this was never really problematized. However, more and more it's becoming clear that EU citizens um, can be married with spouses from outside of the EU. And so what does that mean? Uh, if an EU citizen moves from one member state to the other and his or her spouse is a third country national, should that third country national be allowed to move along as well? As restrictions on family migration have become more in the Netherlands, uh, people have discovered that if they leave the Netherlands, if the Dutch citizen leaves the Netherlands and goes to Belgium, for example, or Germany, or some other EU country, um, then they become an EU citizen and they fall under EU law. And so their spouse has to be admitted on the basis of EU law and not on the basis of the local law of the United States. And on the whole, EU law is much more liberal about admitting family members. So for Dutch citizens, a way to avoid all these restrictions on family migration is to go to Belgium, have your spouse admitted there, and then after a certain period, returning back to the Netherlands. 
um, and being admitted there again as an EU citizen who's made use of the freedom of movement. So it's a way to circumvent restrictive family migration policies. And this isn't just done by people in the Netherlands, anyone in the EU can do this. And the member states obviously don't like this because they're trying to set up their own family migration policies and citizens are able to circumvent these policies through this so-called new tournament. And there has been um, uh, some case law emerging at the European Court of Justice. And initially there was uh, the, the, well, there, was, there were cases before, but there was one important case, the case of Akrich, which was a British case, an English woman with, a, I believe, a Moroccan husband or an Algerian husband, I'm not sure. And she, her husband was in the United Kingdom without residence papers. Uh, this woman went to Ireland. Her husband accompanied her. Um, he was allowed to stay in Ireland, apparently. She came back to the UK with her husband and said, I have traveled within the EU. I've made use of my freedom of movement. So my Moroccan husband has to be admitted uh, with me on the basis of EU law. And the United Kingdom challenged this before the European Court of Justice. And the European Court of Justice um, stated that the United Kingdom only had to admit such a spouse if he or she had already been admitted by another EU member state. So if they had no admission anywhere, then the United Kingdom was not uh, required to admit the spouse. A few years later, there was another case, the Metok case, and this concerned uh, four asylum seekers in Ireland who were all rejected, so they had no permission to stay in any EU member state. These four men had wives living in Ireland, but all uh, with the nationality of another EU member state. And these wives, uh, as in the Akuch case, they said, well, we have moved within the EU, so we fall under EU migration law, and uh, we ask for admission of our husbands on the basis of EU law. And in the Metok case, the European Court of Justice explicitly distanced itself from the position in Agrich and stated that um, as soon as someone falls within the sphere of freedom of movement, they must be able to enjoy normal family life with their spouse, regardless of where they come from, regardless of when they came in, regardless of whether they have permission to stay or not. So this means basically that this whole U-turn um, has been done by the European Court of Justice. And, and in the Metop case, um, the European Court stated that normal family life was inherent to um, being able to enjoy your citizenship rights in the context of freedom of movement. Now, there's some other interesting cases that I want to quote um, that also show that the European Court seems to validate care labor in this context of the freedom of movement. The Carpenter case, which predates May talk, um, concerned also was a British case, concerned um, a, a British citizen who was a traveling salesman. And so he had to be able to travel around the EU member states to sell his uh, journals or whatever it was he was selling. And he had children, and he had a Filipino wife at home, but without a residence permit. And uh, he claimed that uh, if his Filipino wife wasn't allowed to stay in the UK and look after his children, he would be inhibited in his freedom of movement 
as an EU citizen, and he won this case. And so it's interesting that the European Court of Justice followed this logic that to facilitate the freedom of movement, this man needed someone to care for his children. So this care labor was actually being validated in terms of the freedom of movement. What's interesting is that it was done so in connection with the right to respect for family life. Um, the European Court didn't just say there has to be someone to look after your children and she or he has to be able to stay. No, this has to be in the context of uh, the right to respect for family life, which is protected under European Convention of Human Rights. Um, some other cases involve children with EU citizenship with non-EU mothers. And these children were acknowledged to have the right to make use of their freedom of movement within the EU. And it was acknowledged by the European Court of Justice that they could only effectively make use of that right if there was someone to care for them. And these were young infants or young children, but even older children, it was acknowledged, needed the care of a parent. And if that parent happened to be a third country national, that parent still had to be able to stay within the EU to look after that child. So the child has an independent right to residence in the EU and to freedom of movement within the EU. And to facilitate that right, the care-provided parent must be allowed to stay as well. So again, we see a validation of care labor in terms of EU, being able to realize EU citizenship and this ability <coughs> The Texaira case is interesting because in this case, the parent providing care for the child actually had no income of her own. And even in that case, where the father had left the country, the mother stayed behind, was looking after the child. The EU Court of Justice maintained the child had to be able to stay. The mother had to be able to stay to look after the child. And if that meant that the state involved had to provide social benefits, so be it the state would have to do so. So the fact that she was not self-supporting was not uh, an argument to refuse her um, residence rights because that would imply the child would have to leave the EU. Now, in this respect, I also want to mention the case of Levin, which is a much older case. And there's more case law on this, in which it becomes clear that to be an EU worker and to enjoy the rights to residence that is linked to being a mobile EU worker within the EU is not necessary to be a breadwinner. All you have to be is someone who is economically active in an employment relationship of some sort, uh, but you don't have to be earning enough to support yourself. And so this whole notion of being self-supporting, this whole notion <coughs> of a worker being a breadwinner is clearly not present in this EU um, case law. The notion of care being a value for reproducing EU citizenship, and particularly mobile, the reproducing the, the EU citizen as a mobile worker, is being acknowledged, is being validated. And children are being acknowledged as possessing independent rights of their own. So they are not seen as an attachment to their parents and having to follow their parents wherever they go, which is quite characteristic of Dutch migration, family migration law. So there are, I think, very interesting differences in the underlying assumptions that come to the fore in this case law when we compare it to, to the Dutch family migration policies and the kind of um, old 
patriarchal assumptions that resonate in, that, uh, in those policies. So family relations facilitate mobility, economic value of care work, but only acknowledged in the context of family relations, independent citizenship rights of the EU child. There is no cultural prejudice, and there's not, not the sense of the caring parent must be an EU citizen to reproduce the values of the EU, not. The European Court of Justice is totally indifferent to where the caring parent comes from, as long as she is there to care for and reproduce the European citizen. What we do see is, I think, some interesting reconfigurations <coughs> and the relation between family and state in reproducing citizenship. Uh, the fact that the, in Texaira case, the fact that the father had left is not seen as problematic. In another more recent case, a child with EU citizenship and an Austrian mother applied for residence rights for the Turkish father, arguing that the child as an EU citizen should be able to enjoy normal family life, and this would mean also the presence of this Turkish father, lost that case because in the reasoning of the court, the child would not be forced to leave the EU as long as the caring Austrian parent was there. So the, the father is more expendable in that sense than the care providing mother. So in, in many ways, the, 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 the notion of the, the, the patriarchal notion of the breadwinner citizen, I think, is not at the basis of how the European Court of Justice is formulating family life in the context of EU citizenship, which is not to say that it's necessarily uh, emancipatory for women. I mean, uh, the implicit fact that their care is only acknowledged in the context of family relations, the involvement through state benefits for support of family of mother and child raises other issues, power issues. Um, but there does seem to be a reconfiguration of the relation between family and state in reproducing citizenship. And where this is all going is interesting to follow, but obviously difficult to predict. What is very interesting is, you know, what, what is EU citizenship in the eyes of the European Court of Justice? I think this is very contested. It can go many different ways. In the case, the Zambrano case, which involved um, a Colombian couple, uh, who had applied for uh, refugee status in Belgium and had children in Belgium whom they did not report to the Colombian consulate. Uh, so these children did not acquire Colombian nationality and by default they acquired Belgian nationality. And when the parents lost their asylum case, um, they then put forward uh, the claim that because their children were Belgian, their children had a right on the basis of the EU treaty to reside in Belgium, in the EU. And if the parents were to be deported, these were young children, the children would have to join them and so would not be able to effectively join the right to residence in the EU. And the um, Advocate General, uh, who wrote the, um, who prepared this case, <coughs> took the position that EU citizenship was about fundamental rights and that uh, whether people were mobile or not within the EU was relatively immaterial, but that um, increasingly uh, there was a notion of EU citizenship emerging, which uh, as the EU was becoming a party to the European Convention of Human Rights, um, as there was a, a European Charter on Fundamental Rights, that the, sort of fundamental rights were becoming increasingly uh, a substantive element of EU citizenship, and that this should find its expression in this kind of case law. 
Now this, the Sombrano case, the children won, um, but this idea of EU citizenship being, being about fundamental human rights and not just about the freedom of residence and movement was not as uh, powerfully expressed in the judgment of the European Court of Justice. And um, later case law, the one about the, uh, the Austrian child with the Turkish father, for example, suggests that the European Court is not prepared to go very far in that direction yet, in any case, in this um, family migration uh, case law. So I think it's just clearly there are two perspectives. One is on European migration law really being about mobility within the EU, facilitating mobility of workers within the EU, very much an economically driven uh, logic, and the other one is about European citizenship being about um, fundamental rights and protection against abuse of those fundamental rights. And this, this is an issue which is being brought up at the moment. Um, so which way are we going, fundamental rights or more towards the logic of them? But to round off, I think it's interesting to look at what's happening in human rights law because the European Convention of Human Rights applies on the national level and it also increasingly is going to apply on the EU level as the EU is becoming a member of this convention. And um, it's interesting to see that in some case law of the European Court of Human Rights, the whole issue is being addressed, well, what is work in the family? Is this part of family commitments? Is this part of family life? Or is it actually an exploitative form of labor? Um, the Siliana case um, was one of the first cases to come before the European Court of Human Rights um, in which uh, protection was asked against exploitation and servitude. And it involved the case of a 15-year-old girl from Togo who had been sent to France for her education, but who ended up being put to work in a family 24 hours a day, seven days a week, looking after the children without being paid and doing housework, etc. And the French courts struggled um, with the question, you know, what is this? Is this exploitation? And on the one hand, they said yes, because she's not a family member and she's unemployed, so that's exploitative. But was it, um, was it a violation of human dignity? And they said, well, no, because what she's doing is what all mothers do, and so it can't possibly be a violation of human dignity. So you see here how they're struggling with this tension between you know, how, how should you label work, care work, which is being done within the home. When is it family obligation and is it the romance of motherhood and when is it actually exploitation and in violation of human dignity. Another case very interesting that came before the court was that of Osman uh, versus Denmark. This again concerned a young girl, 15 years. Some very interesting parallels between these cases. She came as a child from Somalia to Denmark, where her father had been granted refugee status. And uh, there were problems with her discipline. She didn't do well at school. And there were problems in the family anyway. And the father, at a certain point, brings her to Kenya to meet family in the refugee camps there, and particularly her parental grandmother, who turns out to be not well and in need of care. And so the father left his daughter behind to look after his mother. And after two years, she went to the Danish embassy and asked to be readmitted to Denmark. However, the Danish embassy refused because she no longer qualified for readmission after two years. She managed to come back anyway and apply for residence status. 
And she was supported in her uh, case before the European Court of Human Rights by the Airy Center in Great Britain, who are very specialized in human rights cases. And they put forward the claim that this girl had been trafficked. They said, well, the father brought her back to Kenya against her will to look after her grandmother. And she should be given the protection that you would give to a trafficked child. So they were drawing parallels in the way of the Suriyanian case. Now, the European court didn't buy this um, because the father put forward that he had used his parental authority, which is part of his right to respect the family life as protected by Article 8 of the European Convention of Human Rights. Um, so here we see these two discourses of family life and exploitation being put very clearly in opposition to each other, and the European Court of Human Rights mediating between these two perspectives, where you could say that the perspective of trafficking is very much resonating in Dutch policies on family migration at this point, where also wives who are being, who come to the Netherlands and who are put to work by their in-laws in helping them out in the family are being portrayed as victims of trafficking. And on the other hand, the strong protection of family uh, relations of, uh, of the family unit, of respect for family life that we find in the uh, case law of the European Court of Justice as part of its um, program of facilitating mobility within the EU. So to conclude, we see on the national level that non-Western family migrants are being excluded because they're being labeled as unfree and a hen hence a threat to emancipated family relations. Cross-border families are being constructed as dysfunctional and exploitative, and the Austin case, I think, to a degree, reflects this kind of discourse, the, the area position uh, on that case. Um, and at the same time, remarkably, policies for family reunification are still haunted by the threatened ideal of the male breadwinner citizen, which was at the heart of social democracy in the 50s and 60s. So there is sort of this, still this notion of the ideal citizen being someone who supports his family and takes his responsibilities as, as the head of the family. The European Court of Justice promotes the family unit to the extent that it is facilitating mobility within the EU. It validates care labor, but only within the family. It acknowledges children's independent rights as citizens, particularly children as EU citizens, potential uh, future mobile EU workers. And the question is, is it doing this in the interest of human rights, or is the main focus on facilitating and reproducing a mobile and flexible labor force within the EU? And we see the European Court of Human Rights confronted with the tension between these two uh, perspectives as appeals to Article 4 and appeals to family life are being brought from two sides before the court. And so possibly in the future we'll um, be playing a mediating role and expressing growing unease and confusion about the role that care labor plays and, and how it should be identified in the context of migration policy.